You're listening to The Cutting Edge, presented by Hilleberg the Tentmaker. Hi, I'm Petra Hilleberg, President and CEO of Hilleberg the Tentmaker. My dad, Bo Hilleberg, a lifelong outdoorsman, founded Hilleberg 50 years ago, and we've been family-owned, family-operated, and European-made ever since. We proudly specialize in building strong, lightweight tents and in never compromising on quality of materials or construction. Our tents have been specifically chosen by polar expeditions, mountaineers, backpackers, and avid outdoor adventurers just like you all over the world. We build tents for everyone's adventure. Additional support is provided by Gnarly Nutrition, fueling, educating, and inspiring athletes at all levels. And by Loa Boots, crafting premium footwear for the mountains and beyond since 1923. And PolarTech, bringing you the science of fabric. Hello, this is Dougal McDonald, editor of the American Alpine Journal, welcoming you back to the Cutting Edge podcast. We've been on a break since December, but we're launching a jam-packed new season with nine episodes between now and the end of this year. We're kicking off this season with two first-time guests on The Cutting Edge, Clint Helander and Andres Marin. Clint may be new to this show, but he's no stranger to the AAJ. His in-depth 2013 article about the Revelation Mountains kicked off a renaissance in this westernmost outpost of the Alaska Range. In that same edition, he wrote about the first ascent of Golgotha in the Revelations with Ben Trockey. Their route was something of a consolation prize, as they first attempted a difficult line on the east base. Clint vowed then to return for that direct line. In 2016, Clint and Andres flew in for the first of three consecutive years of expeditions to the Revelations, gunning for the east face of Golgotha. The result that first year was a terrifying avalanche scare at their camp on what became known as the Misfit Glacier. In 2017, they got about halfway up the east face, and then 2018 was too snowy, and then came COVID and other issues. But in 2022, 14 years after Clint first spotted the east face of Golgotha, he and Andres came back, and this time everything clicked. They reached the summit by the east face on March 25th. AAJ assistant editor Michael Levy spoke with Clint and Andres about their many attempts and about the successful climb. Clint Hulander, Andres Marin. I'm really psyched to have you guys on the Cutting Edge podcast uh, to talk about your new climb on the east face of Golgotha in the Revelation Mountains. I guess to start it right off, um, how many times have each of you been in to try this mountain at this point? This is my this was my twelfth expedition into the Revelation Mountains. I went in every year from 2008 until 2000. 18 and then I took a little hiatus for a couple of years and then Andres and I had our uh successful trip here in 2022. Yeah, for me this is my uh fourth time going to to the Revelations uh beautiful mountain range. Um super stoked to to finally get get this uh long time project uh done so yeah. And Clint You've spent a lot of time in the Revelations over the past 15 years or so. You're kind of the go-to guy for that range at this point. <laughs> what, what is it about that range that keeps drawing you back? So I, I grew up in Seattle, and I came up to Alaska when I was 18 for college. And I was not a climber by any means at that point in time. I think like the best piece of outdoor gear I had when I came here to Alaska was like an old two-piece Columbia jacket that I used skiing or something when I was a kid. But I got into climbing and really just kind of delved deep into the classic mountaineering literature of Fred Becky and David Roberts. And uh, the thing that always struck me is that these guys would just go into the mountains and everything they climbed in the from the 40s into the nineties was essentially this new thing. And then when I would look around the Alaska range at places I wanted to go, it just kind of seemed like everything really obvious had been climbed. And then I found a book. I was reading one of David Roberts books on the Ridge between life and death. And he talked about the 
Revelation Mountains. And it just kind of piqued my interest. And in that book, he wrote about how it was this holy, unclimbed range when they found it. And much to my amazement, as I did some research, I found out that 45 after 45 years after their first expedition, more or less, it was still completely unclimbed, save for about 10 expeditions that had been in there. And so I just spent a long time trying to figure out how to get in there and, and figuring out the range. And one trip just turned into two, three, and now 12. <laughs> okay, so for Golgotha, where does the story begin for that peak in particular? Because that wasn't the first peak you tried in the range, but you've, you've put a lot of work into it. I remember seeing Golgotha for the first time in, in 2008 when I went there with my, my partner, Seth Holden, at the time. And on that first trip, we were just ecstatic to find this range. And pretty much every mountain we saw around us was, was unclimbed. And we had done our research. And with the information that we gleaned from David Roberts' very detailed account in the American Alpine Journal, uh, he had not only named the range, but named many of these mountains. So we had studied them as much as we could with what limited uh, information there was. And once we got in there, we could see all these mountains and we kind of started to formulate a plan of which ones we wanted to attack. And gosh, it was going to take years. And some of these mountains would take years and years of effort just to even try one. But from high up on this mountain that we tried the first year, Ice Pyramid, we could see the main spine of the Revelation Glaciers eight miles to the west. And at the very southern edge of that was Golgotha, just this perfect, black, sinister-looking triangle. And seeing its east face from there, we could tell that it was just an amazing peak, just glazed with ice and ferociously steep. And it would take a couple of years before we could get a close look at it. But with the help of planes and being able to fly around just a little bit, every year we could kind of figure out a little bit more about certain mountains. And Golgotha was always always there at the forefront of our minds. Another reason that the revelations haven't been climbed a ton over the years, I guess, is because it's, it's not that easy to get in there, right? It is not easy at all. Unlike the glaciers of the Central Range, most of the glaciers around that western part of the Alaska Range are significantly smaller. They're a little bit lower. And so that means that they are melting out at a more rapid pace. And so they don't have big landing strips. So we have to fly in these little tiny planes called super cubs. And they're kind of like the, the Mazda Miata of cars of planes. They're just super tiny that you fit the passenger in the back and the pilot in the front and a little bit of gear. And, and their whole point is to fly as slow as possible so they can take off short and land short. And that's absolutely required on most of these small glaciers in the Revelation Mountains. Got it. And so then for the east face of Golgotha, you first tried it in 2012, is that right? First got on it? The first time that we actually tried it was in 2012, but we had identified it as uh, the most beautiful way up this unclimbed mountain as early as 2008. And um, as a young alpinist with lofty ideals that uh, definitely were higher than my ability at that point in time, I saw this thing and you could tell there was maybe easier ways to get to the top uh, from other aspects, but Seth and I had to find this face and this line that Andres and I ultimately climbed as like the culmination of everything that we were going to do in the range. And when we were finally good enough, this would be perhaps one of the most beautiful and challenging things that we would ever do. And we kind of meant it to be our culminating masterpiece. Seth died in a plane crash in 2010. So when he died, there were all these things left undone. And that was the first time I had experienced loss of a close friend or a partner. And even though it wasn't in a climbing accident, it uh, affected me greatly. And I wanted to continue climbing there, but I it took me a while to actually want to go back. And when I did, I wanted to do it in a way that I could finish our projects and honor him. And it's taken me a long time, but uh, I finally feel like with the culmination of 
completing Golgotha here that we've done that. What'd you learn on the first time you tried the central uh, shoot in 2012? Well, so the, the East face is this massive black triangle with kind of a upper diamond snowfield that funnels everything off of the walls into this really narrow 1800 foot tall runnel. That's often only two or three meters wide. So anything that falls from above will undoubtedly hit any climber and you just need perfect weather. You need perfect conditions, perfect temperatures. And I think we ultimately learned that those conditions don't come around every season or potentially even every couple of seasons. So the first time we went in there, it had snowed a little bit and even just the most minute amount of spin drift collecting over that amount of vertical terrain can be terrifying when it's all condensed into a two meter runnel of ice coming down on you. So we made it one or two pitches up on the first attempt and we're really just terrified. And we had to repel off of a triple equalized V thread in the snow ice Neve thing. And oh, lovely! it, it scared me away for years in all honesty. And I actually wrote about it in Alpinist 49 about this thing. And I, I wasn't sure that I was going to go back, but then, uh, you know, the ego comes alive. And as soon as I wrote about it and I thought of somebody else getting it, I knew I had to come back, but it, it ultimately took me a couple of years to find the right partner to, uh, try and complete that vision. And I found that in Andres for sure. So just real quick before we let Andres jump in here, who's been waiting patiently that year, 2012, you made the first ascent of the peak, though, correct? After you guys bailed off the central line on the east base? We did. So we, it was this storm, and we were getting pummeled pretty bad in, in that gully runnel system. And um, we repelled out of it, and then you end up landing in this major cooler that goes up. And I said, well... I feel safe enough in here. What if we just go up and see what we can do? We have days of food and it was pretty bad conditions. <laughs> it must've been blowing 40 or something. Once we crested the cooler and our eyes were being welded shut with ice and everything, but it was pretty, pretty easy climbing all things considered. And, and we did make the first ascent of the mountain, but I kind of remember thinking that um, in some ways I had like cheated myself and the mountain by, by climbing it, via this easy way and, and, um, cutting down my ideals of, of this difficult mountain and this improbable line and doing it via an easier way. So I kind of felt like I had to come back and, and do it correctly via this beautiful line that we had envisioned. And then 2016, Andres enters the picture, right? So Andres, when you and Clint, flew into the range in 2016. Was that your first time to the Revelations? Yeah, it was, actually. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I didn't really uh, have, like, didn't hear too much about the Revelations before, um, mainly, like, through some of the, the articles that Clint uh, put out there, and uh, the place on there, like, pretty amazing. Um, I have climbed in, in Alaska for the past decade or so, mainly in the in the central Alaska range. So when he extended the invitation to go to the Revelations, I I, I couldn't really pass it on, you know, like go and uh, check out a new, a new mountain range um, in Alaska in a place that is relatively unexplored, all things considered. So um, it was super cool to go and check out a place with him for sure. Had you guys done much climbing together before? Yeah, we did a trip the previous year, maybe that might have been 2015. We went to the East Fork of the Cahilna Glacier uh, to attempt to climb this peak. And we end up actually like, uh, end up climbing another, uh, a new route Mount Francis in the North Face. Um, but prior to that, you know, I have known Clint since 2004 or five. Um, we started working together um, as as guides in Mount Rainier, taking people up and down the mountain and and all that. So him and I go back back uh, some some good time, um, a decade or actually more than that now. That, uh, so yeah, it was it was great to go in and, uh, on an adventure with him. Okay, so so 2016, 
you guys didn't get up it. It didn't go didn't go quite as planned. Tell me what that year was like. So um, let's see. We we tried to land on the main Revelation Glacier. Um, uh, two two friends of ours, mainly Clint's friends, uh, tried to land us in the main Revelation Glacier uh, due to the snow conditions and the wind that, that they were seeing. Um, they weren't too psyched on landing us in the main Revelation Glacier. So um, we flew around the, the, the mountains in there and they saw this little cul-de-sac, kind of like hanging glacier, right in front of um, uh, of Golgotha, a glacier that we end up uh, naming the Misfit Glacier. Um, yes. And, uh, you know, like listening to, to the pilots, to, to our friends talking to each other, and, and they're like, you know, like I don't really like the way this little um, – Glacier is like they were having a lot of like uh, analysis and doubts. You know, I'm not really a pilot, so I was just like listening to what those guys are saying. And for me, like the the information that I was gathering, I was like, oh, we definitely don't gonna land in here. And uh, and all of a sudden, one of those guys is like, yeah, I'm going for it. And I'm like, oh my god, okay, there we go. You know, like <laughs> you're gonna land in a tiny little glacier in a very small plane. I mean, it doesn't get more more extreme than that i think and uh and we end up actually being uh dropped off in right in front of the face which at the beginning or or a first thigh was awesome because we were just like right there but then um it turned out to be not awesome um once the 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 big storm rolling so yeah what uh what wasn't so awesome what what kind of conditions did you put guys find that year well it went from being exceptionally cold to where we were pretty much just living in our big bags and then we'd go to our little kitchen mega mid and turn the stoves on and cook and then as soon as you're done you kind of get back into your sleeping bags and wait and then it started to get warm and it rapidly warmed to where it went from i don't know 25 below to almost freezing at 5,000 feet and it started snowing and when it started snowing a little bit and then a little bit more, just those little alarm bells in your head start going off. And we had probably received about two and a half feet of snow in, in 24 hours on this one morning. And it was really socked in. And we kind of started realizing that we need to move camp and we were kind of cleaning camp up a little bit. And then you couldn't see anything. It was just kind of a whiteout blizzard snowing very hard. And I'll never forget. We were by the, the main tent and we just heard this very, very unique and different crack, like a reverberating boom. And I just looked at Andres and I remember going, yup. And we turned and just ran out of camp as quick as you can run through knee deep snow and overtaken by terror is what I remember feeling. And, um, you know, that something big was coming and we probably made it about a hundred feet out of camp and just heard this roar. And then I remember getting knocked over and starting to feel snow push around me. And, you know, at that point I pretty much thought that was it. And then it just stopped. I stood up and kind of pulled myself out of a little bit of snow, like up to my knees or waist that had come around me. And I could see Andres to my right. And I have this photo that I just took instinctively at that time. And his, his hands are just on his knees and we haven't even spoken yet. And it's just kind of like overtaken by the fact that we're alive barely. And we look back at where camp used to be and, it's not there anymore. Gone. Uh, um, so the really interesting thing, I had a, I had my camera on my body at this point around my neck and I had been taking a time lapse and I don't know what happened, but I instinctively just pressed record and I started recording like five seconds after this thing had happened. And, um, we walked back to camp where it was 
and we could see these like little things poking out of the snow, like half of a duffel bag or a part of the tent, but both of our tents were gone. And, uh, we could see kind of where part of the tent body was. And ultimately we started to find these things, but we realized that we are in an extremely dire situation. And as we start to kind of, we were looking for gloves, we were looking for a shovel, we were looking for anything that we could use to start finding things. And uh, we would start to get something located and pulled out. And then we ran from another avalanche and another one. And And these, these slides are coming off Golgotha? Kind of the the mountains surrounding Golgotha. But at Mm. this point, you know, we kind of knew where they were coming from. But in this incredibly narrow hanging cirque that we're in, um, you know, it's smaller than pretty much any glacier I've ever been on. And I bet we're probably the first and only people that will ever land there, hopefully. (laughs) Um, (laughs) We just kind of realized, like, we have to get somewhere safe, but there's not really anywhere safe here. Like not really, cause we could move from here, but then if an avalanche comes down this gully, it could potentially hit there. So we're like kind of trying to do all this like geometry and figure out, <laughs> and I'm not very good at math. So I'm like, I don't know what the runout is based on the fall line, but um, it was an incredibly serious situation and it took the better part of a day to kind of locate things. And, you know, for example, our, uh, sleeping four season tent had been completely smashed and ripped up out of its anchors and carried 40 feet. And the kitchen tent was completely ripped and buried. And we just had stuff more or less everywhere. And, um, what I remember doing, like our first plan was, okay, we need to each get something in our backpacks that will allow us as individuals to survive, but collectively as a team to survive so I took a stove, he took a stove. I took an inReach, he took the sat phone. He had a few days of food and some water, and I had a few f- days of food and water. And as we started gathering all the other stuff, like at the very worst, you know, if one of us got hit, then we have survival gear for at least a couple days, hopefully. Um, wow. And that was like the first and only time I've really been in a situation like that where I'm truly, truly like primarily thinking about these things that are usually deep within your subconscious instinctual self about how to uh, stay alive for, you know, not even the next night, but the next hour. That's wild. So suffice to say, you guys didn't get on the route that year, right? We didn't even put our harnesses on. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) Yeah. It was one of those... You know, typical expedition trips that you don't even end up climbing. And uh, and like Clint mentioned, you know, it, it turned out, uh, it just turned out to be a primal survival situation for about three, three and a half days. And uh, it was something that, you know, after, you know, weeks and months and uh, and years, at least for me, is is something that you deal internally and, and mentally and, and uh, um PTSD in a way, you know, of these kind of situations that we went through and, and, and all that. And, um, but it wasn't, it was one of those, those, those things that when I look in retrospective and think like, what could it, what could have done better? It, it wasn't really anything that we could have done better. We were like in a terrain trap or what it became a terrain trap after the amount of snow that it was falling from, um, it was falling down you know anything it, every slope above you know 28 degrees was was avalanching and, and uh, we didn't really have a place to run so um quite experienced to say the least right so then fast forward a year 2017 now you guys come back yeah we 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 went back in uh uh, the following year, uh, this time around, we had a good friend of ours, uh, Leon Davis. He came with us um, to that trip. And that same year, we actually, the three of us, ended up doing uh, another trip to the Himalayas. So that was somewhat of a uh, uh, putting together the team, you know, like to obviously go to, to Golgotha and, and hopefully give it another go or a go and, uh, yeah, right. and such. 
but this time around, we were actually were able to land uh, in the main Revelation Glacier. We didn't want nothing to do with with that little glacier in front of Golgotha, the Misfit Glacier. So, um, but with that being said, that put a couple hours um, in terms of approach just to get to this call that then we had to wrap down and slash down climb to get to the Misfit Glacier before we can even start um, climbing. So that added a fair amount of distance and time on our climb. But uh, but yeah, we were we, we had actually like quite good weather and, and good conditions and and we went climbing. So how did the route go with you, with the three of you on it in 2017? I think it went pretty well. We uh, we now had a little bit of prior knowledge from my 2012 attempt, and then also from our long long time down there. Uh, under the face of Golgotha in 2016. And so with the good weather, we felt pretty good about that. And we actually brought a tent down to the Misfit Glacier, a light tent, and (laughs) kind of had like a little spike camp down there. And then we were still trying to limit our time in this thing. And, And so we kind of figured that we could probably climb it in a push so we went pretty light. We could maybe do a little bit of a, a light bivy, but we didn't carry sleeping bags or a tent or anything. And we ended up climbing about uh, seven pitches up this runnel. So we were about 1,700 feet up the face with the lower uh, cooler combined. And we really learned a lot about the route. I think we were climbing pretty well. But then we were always there's always been this question. At the top of the runnel, there's this chalk stone with a big piece of ice that hangs over it and it looks like the steepest part of the route itself and so as we're getting closer we can see it and you know it still is like who knows when we're going to get turned around but on that trip a um leon's crampon broke oh man (laughs) it was so unfortunate heartbreaker yeah, yeah but we we tried to repair it but i mean it just like cut hours out of our data i think we took like a little small brass nut and right. you know, some <laughs> tape and bailing wire and it it was working enough to get down but it was pretty clear at that point that we couldn't climb difficult ice and and hard stuff but um we so we basically made a bunch of rappel anchors and bailed but uh, we learned a lot about the route including we found this cave that we thought well on future attempts boy this is not only an amazing bivy but perhaps the only safe bivy on route. It's uh, I've seen pictures of it from your guys' ascent this year. It it looks pretty plush, yeah? Oh, it's a, it's big. I mean, if if that thing was in New York, it'd probably go for $4,000 a month or something. Yeah. I don't know. It's probably bigger <laughs> than my apartment. Um so 2017 made some progress with Leon Davis with you guys, but still still not getting up the thing clint you've been in three times now andres you've been in twice was there any ever question was there ever any question that you were going to come back or was it like oh maybe we need to we should just do something else no i think with the information that we gathered in 2017 and and the climbing that we did you know then is is actually like uh personally speaking it gave me more hope or, or or more desire to go back, right? Because we are like, all right, cool. Like you were able to do some climbing, and there is definitely some question marks up high in the in in the mountain. But at the very least, we can go on and find out. And um, I feel like we got a pretty good go, but not the best go that we could have. Just especially like having a equipment failure, you know. So I think it's just like in. If anything, increase that that dream or the hunger to go back to to uh, to Golgotha. You guys came back again in 2018. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That trip um, that delivered more of the standard terrible, terrible weather <laughs> that we have come to know and love so well in the revelations of uh, you fly in on the really nice day. And then it just gets bad and it's windy 
and cold and precipitous. And you spend a lot of time sitting around camp and we were still going for Golgotha, but we skied up to this pass where we get the, the good view of the East face. You can't really see our route, but I don't think we even dropped into the Misfit Glacier that year for a look. I think it was pretty obvious looking from that, that high pass that there was definitely just way too much snow. So what we could see on the face, we knew that that, that runnel was caked. So it was just off the menu for that year. And yeah, we tried a couple other things and, you know, at this point now, Andres and I have been in there for, uh, this is our third attempt and we still haven't stood on top of a damn thing (laughs) (laughs) together anyways. So, uh, I'm wondering how many more times I can con him into coming in here without, uh, (laughs) giving up hope. But, um, the next couple of years, different things happened. We, we ended up going to, uh, different places. And in 2019, we went to, uh, uh, the Himalaya during the spring. So that took the revelations off the table. And, uh, of course then COVID happened. And in 2021, we, we couldn't get in. Um, interestingly enough in 2019, a uh, team of Slovenians flew in and they actually, I just recently found this out. They tried that route that we have been trying on the East face and they got one pitch from the crux. So they got, they actually got a little higher, I think than we did. And then they bailed um, and they were climbing it in like incredibly high snow. And they said that when they were repelling it, like these massive avalanches were coming down and and they felt very lucky to have escaped. So um, yeah. So talking with the pilot this year, he said that the last three years have been really snowy. So going into it in 2022 here, I had very, very low expectations and I don't know if we didn't get it this year, if I would have gone back in 2023, but who knows. So you guys went in in March this year, right? Correct. Had you, it was March the say, the month that you went in on the prior expeditions as well? We have gone in on March for most of these expeditions, um, probably since about 2010. The first couple trips I went in later, but I just realized you needed to go in earlier if you wanted to get those icy conditions and be able to climb the, the concave features of the mountains, you know, these runnels and gullies and um, otherwise, you kind of need to stick to the the convex features like ridge lines because of the shedding cycles that begin to happen. And in in the central Alaska range, right? Uh, if you go earlier season, it tends to be colder, but a little less snow, right? But but maybe not so much in the Revelations. It seems like you just never know what you're going to get in the Revelations. <laughs> yeah. uh, our our pilot Rob says uh, there's bad weather, and then there's the Revelations. Okay, so 2022, you guys fly into the Revelation Glacier in March, and you take another crack at this thing, and finally we're here. Walk, walk me through the ascent. Take it away, Andres. Yeah, so, you know, we, we fly in, uh, as, Clint, uh, as, as Clint mentioned, is like not really that much uh, hope. <laughs> Sounding so such a downer in here, but really it's just like, the amount of weather and things that we're dealing is, is we get in there, but it's just, I personally been thinking about this climb like in daily basis, you know, and it's just like, I just want one more try, you know, um, <clears throat> is that, that ups, became an obsession for me to an extent. So we were able to fly in and uh, yeah, we made camp uh, in the usual or the, the place that we have made camp there before and then uh, the very next day, we went to uh, a recon mission to up the pass where we can see Golgotha and, and see how much snow the face had and all that. And it looked pretty good. So we fixed a couple ropes, rappelled down, and then down climb about 1,000 feet or so to the Misfield Glacier where we can uh, see the face or the mountain. And uh, it looked pretty good. So we were super psyched on what we were seeing and we were like, all right, I think we're going to be able to have a, a good go on this thing. We went back to camp and took a rest day, checked the weather. The weather was touch and go. Our friend Leon, who the same guy who came with us in 2017, he was doing the weather for us and he did a fantastic job. Um, and uh, 
we were able to uh, to climb. So day one, you this is terrain you've already climbed in 2017 with Leon up to that that uh, huge Vivi Cave, right? Correct. Yeah. So we had uh, basically decided that that cave was salvation and we needed to stay there. Um, we had climbed above it obviously in 2017 and there just wasn't really much, you know, you're not going to get a great night's sleep if you're half concerned with getting blasted with things above you all night. So the goal was to make it to that cave and it's a pretty reasonable goal. So we left camp in the morning, skied up the glacier for an hour and then rappelled those couple of fixed lines down into the misfit glacier and uh, climbed up the gully and then, you know, finally got back to this familiar place where we've been a couple times now at the entrance of this runnel. And, you know, like this is, this is game time when you get there. And um, so I'd led that pitch twice already. And so I was, you know, pretty psyched to not lead it again. Cause it's a pretty <laughs> darn hard pitch. It's uh, how hard are we talking? Well, it, it's, it's hard to give it a number grade, but it's these, steps of of snow sometimes overhanging um framed by these very very polished walls that have just been polished by rain and avalanche for a billion years and so you know you're lucky if you get a really really tiny cam or a nut or a tied up piton or something uh here and there but um yeah andres uh took off on that and did a really long pitch to the point where uh, i ended up simul climbing with him kind of on the lower bits for probably 20 or so meters, perhaps even more, I kind of forget, um, to a point where he was finally able to uh, build a belay and, um, you know, pass some of our, our old uh, anchors and such. And at that point, we just kind of started swapping leads. And so the rest of that first day, the leads you're swapping, this is moderate climbing. What are we, what are we talking about? mostly ice snow or mixed yeah it was like little bits of uh of ice climbing here with like vertical very firm snow like neve that's mm-hmm. nice kind of stuff where you just throw your pick at it and it just sucks yeah. in and it feels really secure but there's not a whole lot of opportunities for protection so um you know the climbing is often pretty good or sometimes you're like scratching under snow at some little thing that catches and you hope that it is good enough to, you know, kind of commit to and move off of. Right. Right. So then you reach the big baby cave. How many pitches up is that one? Uh, that was about four pitches. Okay. So you have, you have, you have the long approach, but then not a, a huge day of climbing this first day. Um, and then what, what, what happens on day two? Um, well, after a very, very comfortable night at the Bibby, um, Andres took off out of this incredible cave, you know, that we had been able to unrope and take our harness and crampons off and, and sleep completely, completely comfortable and safe and sound in this warm cave. And uh, <laughs> it was just this magical experience. But uh, I remember Andres, you know, squeezing out of this cave the next morning and just stemming up on the steep ice until he climbed out of view. And, you know, at this point I'm, I'm just so psyched and I just love watching that rope. So it's feeding out of that hole from lying down flat in the baby cave to vertical ice right away. Yeah, pretty much. You know, it was, uh, That's wild. it was like pretty steep and, and, um, uh, one of the, you know, one of the things about alpine climbing is that we might've climbed some, you know, seven pitches, two years, uh, or whatever, like three or four or five years uh, prior, but but as 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 you know, like ice or or mixed or or a snow for that matter, a form totally different every year, you know. So we didn't we knew that we already climbed those pitches, but in the same time, you you don't really know what kind of uh, to expect. And and from what Clint was saying is like you are climbing this like pretty good neve, uh, very little protection, and and hoping that you don't hit a soft uh, section of a snow. Cause if you do that now, you're like full on panic mode because your last piece is like, 
you know, meters and meters and meters below your feet and it is bad news. So it's always like that, you know, you swing and it's kind of like opening a, a gift present, right? Like, <laughs> like, you know, you don't really know what you're going to get. <laughs> so, but yeah, coming out of that cave, you know, we were climbing pretty good and, and uh, um, man, we, we just had a, a really good energy the way we climb together you know it's just like it's a well oil machine you know like i'm leading a pitch he's leading a pitch but just like really just taking care of business uh and and taking care of our our the terrain that we have to like climb and all that and so we were moving quite well and um with that being said the sooner we came out of that cave we know that the biggest question mark of that route was maybe like for or five pitches above us. So that's, that's going to be a, either like stop and go home and forget about how uh, Golgotha forever, at least for me, or like, you know, if we pass that, I personally and talking with Clint, we were like pretty confident that we we're going to be able to, to do this route, you know? So getting closer and closer, there is this monster in a way that has been looming in, in my brain, you know, like this big question mark and you get closer and closer to this thing and you're like, oh boy, there we go. You know, like, how is this going to work out for us? This and that. We actually like when we were doing the, the, the preparation for the, uh, putting the gear together, we actually, um, packed fair, yeah, I would say fair amount of a climbing gear, which later we actually decided to leave it behind after we were able to see the, some of the conditions that, that that they were seeing in terms of the ice and the snow from lower in the Misfit Glacier, we decided to like leave the the hooks and and the aiders behind because we we were like ready to to do whatever we could to See, get out of like... that, you know. But but we end up leaving that all the stuff behind. So um, it's just like every meter that we were gaining, we were getting closer to that question mark, and uh, yeah, and sure enough. Um, uh, we find out that it actually was, uh, um, you know, th- there was ice and snow there. So, you know, when w- when you're seeing ice and snow, it's like, well, at the very least, we have something to work with, um, which it turned out to be a quite a wild pitch. And I will I will let Clint to uh, to describe that. Yeah, well, uh, getting to the base of it, Andres led a pitch up to this uh, kind of these cauliflowers of ice that stack when when vertical ice vertical water rains down and and forms these things and they're all encased in snow and so i was just kind of like hooking up these weird things that you find a lot in like i don't know overhanging ice and i've seen a lot a lot in the canadian rockies but uh, not so much in alaska but so i climb up this thing and it's going but as i'm getting up to the crux part there is just no way I, I have to clear a lot of snow to find good sticks and pro. And it's so narrow in this runnel that I am just blasting Andres with anything that I, that I move down or, you know, pull down. And so I'm just there like bashing away shit, like apologizing as I'm doing it, you know? And um, I kind of get up to the spot where, it's getting really, really steep and I have to clear away a lot of this overhanging snow, like these little gargoyles that hang and I'm kicking through. And in my mind, I'm like, man, this is like dangerous for me. And it's especially dangerous for Andres if I knock anything down on him. And I just look down and he's got these packs above him and he's belaying me head down, just looking for whatever protection he can find from all the stuff that I'm raining down on him. And I ended up finding this other little tiny cave through this curtain of ice. I kicked through and I'm like, holy shit, there's another cave. It's not another bivy cave, really, but it's a cave I think that we can reset and I can bring him up and get him out of harm's way. And then we can kind of confront the pitch, uh, now breaking the crux pitch into almost two shorter pitches. So you brought it, so that worked out, you brought him up? I did. Yeah. I brought him up and now we're inside this little standing room, like a big closet of, of ice and rock and have a really good anchor. And, um, I actually saw that I could potentially climb the inside of this ice cave again. 
and maybe chop through about a foot of snow and ice and then eventually kind of cleave through and wrap around through this window that I could hack and then kind of cheat the inside of this crux a little bit and then confront it, uh, you know, less vertically um, until I had to step outside. And so that's what I did. It took a long time and um, I ended up, I got out and was hacking there and like had my foot hooked in on this piece of ice, one foot out, one foot in. And it took me a long time, but eventually I was able to kind of make a nest of cams. And then when I finally committed to like trying to work my way out around this thing, I ended up taking this lead fall and not a big one, but like sucked, sucked Andres up, I think. And (laughs) I'm out there like dangling in space, like take, 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 take. And he's like, I'm lowering down and I don't know what's happening. And he's getting, I guess, I don't know what's happening inside. That is exciting. Um, and so is this, this is like a, uh, vertical ice kind of against the wall or a dagger or what? I I read something about a dagger somewhere. Yeah. It was like this hanging dagger thing that kind of formed over this big chalk stone. And as we got up there, I realized it's kind of a body width hanging dagger and I need to use it. And boy, I wanted to put a screw in it so bad, but then I was also terrified that you know, hey, if I fall, it's just going to probably rip out and take me with it. Now it's going to have a 500-pound piece of ice attached to me. So I didn't do that and uh, just trying to work around and um, ended up getting some, you know, subpar sticks. And then eventually I just did this big, huge reach out as I'm kind of on this pillar about to pull over the bulge and just swung my tool into what I was sure was powder oh. ice. And it was that neve. And again, no pro, but it just, you know, sunk in two or three inches of my pick and it just felt so good. It's hard to, hard to explain how good that feels. And, uh, and then just another couple of those and I was on the snow, not really able to protect that well, but I just remember knowing that I don't care if I have to climb 50 feet of this, like I, we're going to get up this thing, you know, and I let out this gigantic scream and, and then I was looking for an anchor as soon as I could to bring him up and just get past this major, major, you know, 14 year question mark. So then, so you're, you're, you surmounted this pitch that you think was probably going to be the crux. So you, so you bring Andres up, you guys are feeling good. What, what's next on the docket? Oh man, after, after we were able to like finish that pitch and, you know, me being in the cave and, and clean, uh, you know, yelling that like we were able to do it. it was just so awesome, such a good relief. And I was like, this is, this is great. You know, we're, we're doing it. And, um, uh, one thing about this speech is that if this speech was like lower down in a, in a different route or, or in a different area and all that, it would be like a world-class type of, type of pitch, you know? And, and, um, I think it would be, um, we like clean end up doing a little bit of, uh, of a climbing. I end up pulling in some pieces following that, uh, these two, but I would say it would be probably like, uh, you know, MA, maybe what did I six type of thing? Oh, wow. Very um, serious. Yeah. 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 Actually it was, you know, when I was put like how, uh, what, uh, Clint mentioned that we were climbing with three ropes and when we were holding the packs, I'm pushing the packs through this little window that he created early on. And then when I push the packs, the, basically the packs go right into space, you know, it's like, That's- it kind of reminds me of like, if you cut your, your whole backs loose in a, on the whole line in El Capitan, right? They just, or some routes in El Cap, they just like go in this space and you're like, oh boy, this is really steep. And that's what I remember seeing, but it was like on, a, on an Alpine phase, right? So yeah, I followed that pitch and man, the, the, uh, the terrain after that, it just seemed like it was like pretty, pretty easy. Still, like you know, hard climbing, but you know, we were we were going up. <laughs> so I took over. Uh, we did a, a long pitch of like steep snow, and then from there, we just I, I don't know. There, there was this energy that it took over us, and, and we just started simul climbing. We did like a pretty good uh, block of maybe a couple hundred meters of simul climbing, you know, um, maybe like water ice three or four or something like that, some mixed steps and, and such, but we were just like going, you know, and it was awesome. And, uh, but also the, the, the day was, we were running out of, out of daylight. And, and I remember like, uh, 
Clinton and I, after we did that long simul climb section, I, he, I bullied him to where I was. And, and uh, I was like, hey, I want to take a executive decision here and, and let's try to find a, a place to, uh, uh, to BB. So um, he led another pitch, which turned out to be like quite hard. Um, and then uh, I did this traverse uh, into this snowy section, and then we start into uh, to put our um, our bivy, our second bivy. So, what yeah. what was the uh, the bivy spot like for this second night on the on the face? Well, compared to the cave the night before, this is like you know <laughs> slipping in the gutter. But uh, it was still <laughs> it was still pretty nice. Um, it was a, a small ledge that we kind of chopped out. Um, big enough for the first light to an extent, but uh, we kind of couldn't keep hacking down because there was rocks protruding eventually out of the snow. And so, uh, you know, one of the the wild parts of of this climb, the things that happen when you're not climbing that, uh, you know, still you don't tell your mother about, uh, we were, Andres was organizing the route or the the gear on, on the rack there with the anchor and I am putting everything in the tent and, you know, I'm trying to be the good guy. So I take the outside, which, you know, could potentially be exposed to anything that would fall in the night, you know? And, um, that's when, uh, you know, when being the good guy bites you in the ass and I get in the tent and take my boots off and then I go to kind of, uh, switch over and move towards the back and I slide on my pad and the ledge is not quite big enough to have the whole tent on the ledge and when I do that, I I fall off into space on the oh, off the ledge with the tent clipped in, and I had a long tether, probably ten or twelve feet, because um, I hadn't kind of reconnected and uh, tightened it up. And I took a <laughs> bivy ledge whipper <laughs> with with the tent and ripped the tent. I mean, it was you know, it's I laugh about it now, but it was. Um, Super. That could super have been sketchy. a climb ending, yeah. or worse for sure. Oh yeah, not my shiny. But you get you, sur- you That's for sure. The the tether caught you. You still had the tent on you. You're in the tent basically, right? In the tent, in my uh, the liners of my boots with everything now hanging on a fifty some degree face. You know, with this tent that's all ripped up now, like including, you know, my six thousand oh, dollar camera setup I have with me and. And Andres's sleeping bag, and you know everything, everything in the tent now in this bag, and and I'm more pissed and scared. And he's like, "Do you want a rope?" And I'm like, "No." And I just like grab the tent with my hands and kick up this slope with uh, with my booties and throw the tent back on. Him. Let's make the ledge a little bigger now. <laughs> so you guys, you guys have a have a second night here on the face. Wake up in the morning and. You guys pretty sure you're going to the top on this third day? Yeah, it seemed like uh, at that point the the way down is it was a uh, the way up. That's and I, I vividly remember uh, Clint saying this that morning, you know, and um, and it was true. You know, we had it. It was easier for us at that point just to keep pushing up, um, up and then descending than than try to rappel from there. And um, we thought that from that point on it's going to be uh, fairly. Um, moderate terrain but it actually turned it turned out to be the the, the opposite you know like i left the um the b village with a with a down climb and around this corner and climb as you know as high as i could and i started getting like pretty good rope drags because of that down climbing and stuff and i remember seeing this this dagger of ice and i'm like oh boy there we go like <laughs> <laughs> this is not over yet you know and uh clean did an excellent job leading that pitch it turned out to be quite quite hard pitch um for him to lead it but also for me following it um there was this crazy traverse that he ended up doing um he had to do basically so i remember like following that pitch and just having this traverse and you kind of have to like climb up and then down climb and I was like, oh man, this is <laughs> this is what we're having for breakfast this morning, you know, like wow, there we go. And then I did another pitch um up at the steepest uh snow and like down climb this this weird thing. And then 
another pitch that that Clint uh, totally shine uh, on it, and and it's funny how it works. Oftentimes, because you see a pitch or you see a section, and you're like, ah, oh, that doesn't really look too bad, right? And then once you are on it, then it's like, oh man, this is like way harder and way more awkward and way more dangerous and all that. And, and, um, and that pitch actually uh, end up taking uh, Clint to lead me to follow like quite some time mm-hmm. to do. So, um, and one of the coolest things about that pitch, uh, because after the pitch, we end up on the upper snow slopes is that, um, uh, he put a pit on a knife blade and I was following, I was so cold that I was just like, and it was so welded in there and I work on it for like five minutes and I'm like, screw it. I'm just going to leave it here. So if there is any doubt <laughs> about our ascent, there is a piton <laughs> right at the end of <laughs> of the of the climb. We were joking about that. So, um, but yeah, and after we came out of that pitch, it was just you know steep snow to the summit, and and uh, I took from there, um, and then we did some simul climbing, and and uh, I remember getting to the summit, and and. I mean, it's so hard to describe the euphoria that, that you feel and like just some many different feelings and, and, and all that, you know, I remember like tearing up and all that just because of the amount of work and time and everything we, we, we've we been going through, uh, try to climb the mountain and especially like, you know, climbing the mountain with, with, with such a wonderful partner and all that. And, and it was, uh, it was such a hard thing to describe, but, uh, uh, a wonderful time, a wonderful moment. So um, I started reeling the rope in, and I saw Clean start to poking out, and and he lifts his arms up, and and uh, I'm like taking a photo, and then tears coming out of my eyes. <laughs> oh man, this is so crazy! But it was so cool. What a great moment was that? And and Clint, did you did you shed some tears up there too? This was a long journey for you. Oh man, absolutely, yeah, and. Uh, for many reasons, just mostly because of what Andres and I have have been through collectively to get to this moment and the hard work that we put in and um, the conversations we've had and the things we've done and other times kind of in preparation for this, you know, just me climbing with him down in Colorado, whatnot, um, just seems like so long. But then also thinking about uh, uh, Seth and this vision that I had when I was 23 with him. And, um, it really felt like a, a culminating moment for sure. Um, and then on top of that, uh, I count myself very fortunate to have been able to get to know David Roberts, who was, uh, kind of the, you know, I consider him the godfather of the revelations and, uh, his words were what inspired me to go there all those years ago in the first place. And, uh, you know, he passed away a year ago and, um, I just remember being up there feeling gratitude for Andres and uh, for Seth and for David and just um, wishing that they were all able to know that uh, uh, we were up there and, and, you know, in some way that they shared a large part of that with us. But then, of course, you still have to get down, so we're not quite done. But you have already been up the descent route in 2012, right? So any... Any big surprises on the descent, or was it fairly straightforward? <laughs> uh, it went pretty pretty well. We uh, we veered a little bit from the way we went up. Uh, we did about seven rappels into the gully, and then we got down. And uh, one of the amazing little fun side anecdotes is that uh, at the very bottom of the climb in the gully, we found Andres's glasses that had dropped from that second bivy ledge that morning. <laughs> more than 3000 feet and, uh, intact. And I, I found them and, and I got there first and I was just so giddy to show him these intact glasses. And I mean, it was just a really funny moment when I gave them back and I think they still work. Amazing. Well, so. <laughs> yeah. But all, all said and done, you know, like the descent, it was like awesome. And, and Clint did a great job, like leading the rappels cause he, he knew where more or less where he was going, even when, like he said, you know, we bear a little bit uh, from his original route. So all, all things considered, the descent was it was super, super mellow. And then we got to uh, to the Misfield Glacier. Uh, we still needed to climb a thousand feet uh, to get back to the main Revelation Glacier. Uh, 
uh, basically to our skis because that's where we drop the skis and all that, you know, and like having to like ski down to base camp for me was like the hardest part. Now we are using like Silverera binding. So you're basically skiing with your, with ice climbing boots and it's heavy packs. We've been on the go for three days, uh, super tired and like we're going to ski, you know, try to ski down. And that for me was, I think that was like actually the crux of the whole <laughs> entire journey you know like and even for Clint, he's actually like a pretty good skier on 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 his ice climbing boots and hey man i'm from colombia i didn't <laughs> grow up skiing or none of that shit you know like i didn't so see snow for first time when i was like when i moved to united states you know like i was like 20 years old so um and i just felt so many times and i was just so tired you know i just wanted to be done with with the skiing part because it was just and and the conditions were terrible we were like skiing these like um wind slap things super variable sometimes you start on the top sometimes you like uh punch through and it was so bad <laughs> and uh he was like ahead of me and i'm in one point i just took my skis off i was just so like tired of like wiping out i ended up breaking a pole too and all that and i'm walking uh, actually, I put my skis back on when it got pretty flat, and I can see the reflection of one of the tents, but I cannot see the other tent. And I was the the kitchen tent, right? And I was like, I was so tired that I started to double guess myself, and it's like, man, like I'm this wasted that I cannot really see what's going on or what. And then, sure enough, when I got close to to our our sleeping tent, the kitchen tent was gone like gone did completely disappear and it's this like dome thing that i helped design uh, uh for the north face and and it's super super sturdy and all that but uh, it was completely gone and everything else that i was inside and when i say inside meaning like the food uh the stoves everything so we were like joking that we we're gonna have like this grilled cheese sandwich we were talking about that we're gonna have a sip of whiskey and it's gonna be like the celebratory like evening and all that <laughs> it was far from it <laughs> you, you guys have great luck in uh, the revelations <laughs> oh, <man. huh? laughs> it's, it's just i'm telling you like the revelations in Golgotha. wait wait, wait where yeah. did where did the tent go we don't know <laughs> it's it, <laughs> <what>? <laughs> this is just gone <laughs> Oh man, like it was so gone. I just, uh, fast forwarding the movie a little bit. The next day, I went on a ski down miles down the glacier and tried to look for it, and I never found it. We even so that night, uh, we actually end up having to start shoveling. So we are talking about there is it's around midnight or something, and we are just like starting our our you know our mission again our, our search and rescue mission uh to collect all all the items and we starting to like shovel and start finding some bits and pieces of things and eventually we find most of our stuff but the tent itself is like i don't know it's completely gone it's it's a mystery i think i think that place is haunted actually <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's amazing found the sunglasses but didn't find the tent yeah right um yeah. So it sounds like a a really challenging, really beautiful line. Do you think it, it deserves some some attention from, from some other people now that you guys have polished it off? Oh yeah. I mean I'm sure that maybe someday in a hundred years somebody will will try it. But uh yeah, I don't know if most people probably don't wanna take 14 years to climb a damn route so <laughs> who knows <laughs> as we close this episode I want to offer a word of encouragement to Andres and his partner Anna Faff Anna suffered severe frostbite during and after a climb of Mount Huntington in Alaska this spring and the two have been publicly and rather heroically in my opinion sharing the stories of her treatment in the many weeks since we wish them both well Thanks to Clint and Andres for sharing their stories. And thanks, too, to Hilleberg the Tentmaker. Hilleberg has returned as presenting sponsor for yet another season of The Cutting Edge. We're so grateful for their support, and we urge you to check out Hilleberg.com to see what makes their tents so special. This podcast receives additional support from Gnarly Nutrition. Born in Utah's Wasatch Mountains, Gnarly Nutrition is committed to fueling, educating, and inspiring athletes at all levels. 
Gnarly provides honest, effective, and great-tasting nutrition that is third-party tested. Gnarly's full line features science-backed products free of hormones, GMOs, proprietary blends, or anything artificial. Add Gnarly Nutrition to your training regime to help you send. Use code AAC20 for 20% off site-wide at gonarly.com. We also get help from Loa Boots. Loa began as a village cobbler in Bavaria in 1923. Almost 100 years later, Loa is still based in that village and is still building boots and shoes in Europe under the world's most stringent environmental and labor standards. From mountaineering and ice climbing boots to rock climbing shoes, hiking boots, and lightweight trail shoes, Loa is recognized worldwide for the uncompromising quality, fit, and comfort that make Loa boots simply more. Harness? Check. Chalk bag? Check. Grid fleece? Check. For over 30 years, climbers have checked their gear list to make sure they've packed PolarTech. Climbers love PolarTech fabrics for their lightweight warmth, quick drying performance, and ease of movement. Found in iconic apparel pieces worn by legendary outdoor adventurers, PolarTech remains an essential piece of climbing equipment. You probably have some in your closet right now. Whether you wear your pullover or use it as a pillow, PolarTech brings a bit of comfort to the crag. PolarTech is the science of fabric. Until next time, this is Dougal McDonald wishing you happy climbs. <laughs>